Good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys. I'm glad uh, to see y'all. Uh, obviously, uh, if, if you were here last week, I was sick out last week, and so I am glad to be back with you this morning. Um, still dealing with some, some cold uh, issues, you know, how colds kind of stick around for what seems like weeks at a time, so still struggling with some issues like that, so bear with us, but uh, feel much better, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I'm going to be heading out immediately after I'm done preaching to go to uh, another church in the area, a church that we have a, a relationship with who's been supportive of us and, and uh, to preach there this morning. Um, and so be in, in prayer for me as I do that uh, so that I don't collapse and, and uh, you know, nothing uh, traumatic happens like that. Um, Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 5, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19, Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. Uh, That is uh, in page 228 in the uh, white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Uh, And the scripture text for this morning is on page 228 of those Bibles. Uh, when you're ready, you can go ahead and stand, and we will read God's Word. Stand out of reverence and respect for God's Word. This morning, we want to read this with reverence. We want to read this with joy. We want to read this with awe, because this is the voice of our God speaking to us now. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, From the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every day or every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor." because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint the reading and proclamation of your word with the power and presence of your spirit. We pray that you would let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So this morning, we're picking back up in Nehemiah 5. Uh, Two Sundays ago, we looked at verses 1 through 13. 
And in those verses, we saw the poor and the needy being taken advantage of. We saw the rich exploiting the poor and their vulnerable positions. We saw many in the community being driven by greed and a sort of over-desire for earthly riches. Uh, But as we also saw, uh, Nehemiah, as a good example for us, heard the cry of the poor. He defended the poor. And he worked to see that they were taken care of and, and that the community faith was the community of faith was generous toward those in need. And what we see in our text this morning is that uh, that sort of character, uh, that sort of virtue that Nehemiah exemplified in that particular portion of text didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, he, you see, he didn't just do the right thing as some sort of random ethical decision. with an otherwise lifestyle of greed and and hoarding. Uh, His life was shaped and built around habits and practices of generosity. His disposition was one of generosity and sacrificial giving and sacrificial living. Nehemiah was a just and generous man. And that's what our particular portion of text shows us this morning. But the text doesn't just show us that Nehemiah was a generous man. Uh, as Paul says of, of the Old Testament scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says these things have been written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's, there's instruction here for us. There's an invitation here for us. This text beckons us to something. It beckons us to consider our own habits regarding our time, our, our talents, and particularly, specifically, our, our treasure, our possessions and, and money and finances. By treasure, I mean our, our money and our possessions. This particular portion of text beckons us to consider whether or not we're generous with what the Lord has provided for us and given to us. And not only that, it also beckons us to consider our motivation for generosity, Three times, Nehemiah kind of lifts the curtain for us here, and and he exposes not only his his habits of generosity, but the sort of driving force, the motivation for his habits of generosity. And so we're called here to consider our own motivation uh, when, when we're generous with our time and talent and treasure. When we give to the church, when we give to those in need, when we give to the mission and cause of the kingdom of God, what's driving us? What is What is our motivation? These kinds of questions are worthy of our consideration here this morning. So let's look together. We're going to begin with uh, observing Nehemiah's generosity and then Nehemiah's motivation. And as we do, this is what we're going to find. This is the the sort of big idea. Big idea is that God's people ought to be generous because they fear God, care for God's people, and look forward to their eternal reward. God's people ought to be generous because they fear God, care for God's people, and look forward to their eternal reward. First, we'll consider Nehemiah's generosity. Now, sometime after Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem within the same year, he became the governor of the land of Judah, the the sort of province in which uh, Jerusalem was in. That makes sense, of course. He was high up in the administration of King Artaxerxes. uh, and, And so when he arrives in the city, he arrives with that sort of authority, the authority that would come with that. In addition, uh, he, he most certainly would have been well-liked by the people of Judah. He was a Jew himself. He was a just man, a generous man, a man with uh, competent leadership skills, as we've seen so far. And we see here in our text that he's a generous man. He's a generous man. We see this first in Nehemiah's sacrificial lifestyle. 
So as the governor, Nehemiah had certain rights. You see, he, he had the right to exact a food allowance from the people under his charge. He had the right also to tax them and take a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver, which is a massive amount of money for a single day. But Nehemiah doesn't avail himself of these rights. Instead, as he says, starting in verse 14, he says, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. So Nehemiah willingly sacrifices and lays down his rights so that the people are not needlessly burdened. He willingly lays aside his prerogative so that the people of God and the cause of the kingdom of God would flourish so that the people would not be oppressed. He laid aside his prerogatives. He lived a sacrificial lifestyle. A good illustration of this is, is, uh, is what um, John Piper is well known for uh, referring to as a wartime lifestyle, a wartime lifestyle. Um, I prefer the term sacrificial lifestyle. Uh, I think it better illustrates what we're talking about. But Piper's illustration is, is a good one. Uh, the point he's getting across is that we ought to live sacrificially because we have a greater cause to live for than simply hoarding up possessions and getting a fat savings account or something like that. We live our lives for the sake and cause of the mission and kingdom of God. And that's often what a nation's citizens will do when, they live in war, when they're in wartime. They'll get rid of the excess. They'll do away with unnecessary luxuries in order to devote more time and resources to the cause. Uh, maybe you've heard of the way that Americans rationed during certain times um, in, in World War II. Uh, by President Roosevelt's orders, the Office of, Pri- of, of Price Administration began to put a, a limit on uh, the prices of many items and goods, and they began to set limits of, of consumption by rationing. They rationed goods like gasoline and firewood and meat and dairy and all sorts of other things. And the American people just learned to do without certain things or certain amounts of things that they, they'd become accustomed to during normal times, non-war times. And they did so because they were devoted to the cause, They were devoted to sacrificing their time and their treasure for the sake of the greater good. (coughs) Excuse me. And now, of course, I'm not saying that we should ration our food and and gas and firewood or whatever in order to live a sacrificial lifestyle for the kingdom of God. I'm not advocating for that sort of thing. Rather, what we see here is simply an example of living sacrificially for the sake of the cause. They lived a sacrificial lifestyle for the greater good. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's going without. He's living a sacrificial lifestyle. He's laying aside his prerogatives for the greater good of the mission, for the greater good of the people, for the greater good of the flourishing and and rebuilding of the city of God. And we're called to do the same today as Christians. We have a mission to make disciples of all nations. We're called to give generously and sacrificially to that cause and mission. We're called to be generous to our local church. We're called to be generous to the needy and to open our hands to the poor. And sometimes that means living sacrificially, going without certain things for the greater good. And this might be particularly relevant as we inhabit this cultural moment. We, we might not see it, but we, we live in a time where perhaps 50, 60 years ago, 
people would have been shocked by what we consider necessities today. Things like phones and laptops and dishwashers and, and other things like that. I'm not saying get rid of your phone or laptop or dishwasher or anything like that, but I'm saying we need to be careful. We need to be careful in our consumer capitalist culture. We can so easily slip into living as if we have a lasting city here when we don't. We need to be careful. We need to consider whether or not there are certain goods or or ways of living that we enjoy that distract us from our calling to live generously as Christians, live generously as people who have heaven to look forward to, people who have the city of God to look forward to in the age to come. This brings us to the other side of sacrificial living, which is sacrificial giving. Nehemiah didn't just lay aside these rights and go without the food allowance and and the daily ration. He also gave sacrificially to the people and mission of God. He writes in his memoirs again, I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, and six sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance at a big party every 10 days. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor. Nehemiah and his servants, who were most definitely paid by him, were themselves working on the wall. And not only that, but whenever they'd take breaks to eat, a, a bunch of folks would, who were working on the wall would all head to Nehemiah's house for dinner, for supper. And he provided an ox every day, six choice sheep every day, birds for people to eat every day, and then every 10 days, uh, an abundance of wine. Uh, for Jews who are working on the wall, for officials in the city, all in all, about 150 men. It's a lot of people to feed. And then also for foreign dignitaries who would come to visit every day, he'd provide all of this food for people at his own expense. Nehemiah gave of his time, he gave of his talent, he gave of his treasure, he gave generously and sacrificially. And Christians, we're called to do the same. We're called to be generous with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. We're called to give sacrificially and generously. And I want to apply this particularly in the area of giving generously and sacrificially to the church. Now, we've obviously, if you've been around for much time at all, this is not something that we talk about very often. We don't talk about giving to the church a ton. I think Uh, Maybe we should be more intentional about discussing it. We were just talking yesterday at our our budget planning meeting. Our budget team was together, and we were talking about how giving to the church is truly an issue of discipleship. And if you remember, you actually vowed to do it. You vowed to to give to the church. It's in our membership covenant and our membership vows. And of course, we don't don't prescribe a certain amount of money. We don't prescribe a tithe, the sort of 10% of your income rule, although that might be a helpful percentage for for most people. But if you're a member of this church, you're called to give generously to the church. You're called to give sacrificially. As a local church, we have financial needs and responsibilities. We need a place to meet. We have to pay for this. Soon, we're going to be looking for a more sort of permanent location. We are looking for a more permanent location. We're going to have to pay for that. As a church, we vote on the budget every year. And we determine how much we're going to give to missions and church planting and outreach, both locally and nationally and internationally. We have a duty and obligation to support efforts like that. 
My job and duty as a, as a pastor is to feed the sheep with the word of God. Uh, and and I'm, I'm financially supported by the church in order to do that. You feed my family so that I can focus on shepherding and leading the church. We have a duty to have funds for benevolence, to, to help saints in need in our community. We must fulfill that duty. All of that and more depends on the generous giving of the members of this church so that we can fulfill those duties and obligations that we agreed to fulfill together in our membership vows and covenant. In other words, we have a mission to accomplish as a local church, and so as Christians, as members of the church, we ought to be generous and give to the church. You can do that in in several ways. You can drop money in the bucket in the back. There's a black box on the welcome table. Our online giving page, you can give there, and you can set up just a monthly giving, uh, habitual giving. Uh, You you can uh, send uh, cash or or check through the mail. Uh, You can can do that in, in all sorts of ways. And as a member of this church, you should be giving through one of those avenues. If you're not a member of this church, I'm not talking to you this morning. But if you're a member, part of your duty is to financially contribute to the church, to contribute to uh, our collective giving to missions, to contribute to helping those in need in our midst, to contribute to funding the mission of worship of this church. And that's what Nehemiah was seeking to do in the community of faith in the Old Testament. He was contributing to the needs of the Old Testament church, and he was doing so generously and sacrificially. But now we not only want to consider what Nehemiah did, we want to consider Nehemiah's motivation. What, what motivated his generosity? And in many ways, this is just as important of a question. This is just as important as what Nehemiah did, isn't it? Considering his motivation. It's just as important as considering what he did. You know, in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, uh, it's never satisfied with our merely doing the right things. Uh, Our inner motivations, the inclinations of our hearts, the affections and passions and emotions that are driving us are always to be considered. And that's true when it comes to giving as well. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul sums it up best when he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Ask yourself, could that be an accurate description of you? Are you a cheerful giver? Someone who gives cheerfully, gladly, happily? And perhaps this is more a relevant question than whether or not we give in the first place to many of us in the room. I mean, I I don't know specifics, but I know, Veritas, you are a very generous people. I know that is true because our church has been very well provided for by your generous giving. You are a very generous people. But I I think as a generous people, we should consider our motivation for said generosity. We not only want to consider our habits of generosity, we also want to consider our motivations for generosity. Are we cheerfully generous? Is it our delight to give our time, our money, our talent? Are our motivations sound? Nehemiah's were. Look at what was motivating him. Uh, First, notice in verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God, because of the fear of God. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, it might be somewhat of an unusual sounding phrase to you. Are we supposed to fear God? Doesn't perfect love cast out fear? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? of God? What does this mean? Well, to fear God means to be in awe of him. 
It means to have a, a healthy reverence and respect for him, to consider him as the weightiest reality in one's life. You know, and, and he is desert, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He is the holy, sovereign, mighty, infinite God. He's all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He deserves our reverence and respect and, and weighty considerations. I think Lucy's conversation about Aslan with, with Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe puts it best. Mr. Beaver, he's describing Aslan to Lucy, and he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, Mr. Beaver had a healthy reverence and respect for the greatness of Aslan in the right sense, in the biblical sense. He feared Aslan. And in the right sense, in the the biblical sense, Nehemiah fears God. And this fear motivates him to generosity. And interestingly, this is not the only place in the scriptures where we see a connection between fear and God and generosity. In Acts 2.42-47, this great description of this new covenant church where they were devoted to the means of grace and to generously giving. Luke says, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. That's possessions. They had all their possessions in common. They were sharing all of their things and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And what was motivating this? What we see in verse 43, and all came upon every, you could supplement the word fear there, and fear and awe came upon every soul. They were in awe of God, of his greatness, of his gospel. God filled their vision. You see, they lived in such a way that they considered God before and above everything in their lives. They didn't want to carry on their lives as if he didn't exist. Okay, you know, God wasn't a a philosophical concept to them. He wasn't an abstract idea to them, something they merely talked about with their friends while they smoked cigars like us reform types are so often guilty of doing. God was was real to them. He was weighty to them. He feared, they feared him. They considered him as the weightiest reality in their lives. They considered him when they looked at their lives, when they looked at their marriages, when they looked at their properties, when they looked at their money, when they looked at their time, when they looked at everything, they considered him first and above all else. He was the greatest consideration of their lives. That's how, they, that's how fearing God motivated generosity for them. We don't want to look at our finances apart from considering what would most honor God. That's how we approach finances. When we look at our possessions, we consider what what most honors God with the way I use the things God has given me. When we look at our wallets, our purses, our watches, we consider what what would most honor God with these things. He's the weightiest consideration of our lives. That's what it means to fear God, and that's how fearing God motivates generosity. Next, Nehemiah was motivated to generosity because he, feared for, he, he cared for God's people. Look at verse 18. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and 
Six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Considering his possessions and finances and time, he not only considered God because he feared God, he also considered the people of God because he loved them, cared for them. He had affection for them. He wanted to protect them. He wanted them to be well provided for. He wanted them to be well looked after. Remember, this is what led Nehemiah to weep and to mourn and to pray and to come to Jerusalem in the first place in, in, verse, in, in chapters 1 and 2. Because he, so cared, he cared so deeply for the people and city of God. And you know, this should be the mindset of every Christian. We made note of this two Sundays ago wherein we made a case where Nehemiah made a case for forgiving the debts of the poor in the city because in, in the, those in debt and poverty are brothers and sisters of the believing community. And you know, when you become a Christian, you don't just enter into a new relationship with God. Although you most certainly do, and that's primary. But you also enter a new relationship with his family. You also enter a new relationship with the church. If you're adopted into the family, you do get God as your father, but you also get the church as your brothers and sisters. We celebrate and enact this every week during the passing of the peace. You receive salvation. You're not only reconciled to God, you're reconciled to the believing community. You're part of the family. And part of the motivation of being a generous people is that of wanting to provide for and see the flourishing of that family. Think about that. Whenever you give to the church, whenever you give to those in need, think about how brothers and sisters are being discipled and cared for and provided for. Let that increase your cheerfulness and giving. Let that motivate generosity in you. And lastly, we see that Nehemiah was not only generous because of the fear of God, because he cared for God's people. Nehemiah was generous because of the eternal reward. In verse 19, this particular section of text closes with Nehemiah saying a prayer. He just kind of randomly will jot down a, a little prayer in his memoirs as he's, as he's uh, writing these. And, and this is one of those instances. He writes, remember my, for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Now that's a curious phrase. What does that mean? Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Does that mean that, that God might forget about what Nehemiah has done? Can God forget something? That's not what Nehemiah is saying here. God cannot forget anything because that would mean that God would cease to know something. And that's impossible because God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things, past, present, and future. Nothing escapes his knowledge. He knows your inner thoughts. He knows what you ate for breakfast this morning. He knows what you ate for breakfast on this date last year. He knows what's going to happen to the world 337 years from now. He knows everything. So no, Nehemiah is not afraid that God might forget something. Rather, Nehemiah is asking that the Lord properly reward, that, asking that the Lord properly reward Nehemiah for his actions and generosity. He's asking the Lord for a reward for his actions of generosity. But of course, that raises some more questions. Questions like, what does Nehemiah mean in this prayer? Is, this, is he relying on his own works for his salvation? Is that what's taking place here? Is he relying on his own generosity to justify him before God? Again, that's not an interpretation of this text that we would ascribe to. We must reject that. 
We know that salvation is a free gift given by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If we sold all that we owned and donated the proceeds of the church and to the poor and to the needy, that would still not be enough to make us right before God. There's no way any sinner could pay the debt of our sin before God. So what does Nehemiah mean here? The Scottish pastor and theologian Derek Thomas helps us here. Listen to what he says about Nehemiah's prayer. Such prayers are asking God to consider us according to his remunerative righteousness rather than his retributive righteousness. Isn't a father supposed to be pleased with good things that his children do, even if they may not be perfect? Our heavenly father smiles when he sees us imitating his own son. See what Dr. Thomas is getting at here. Listen, our, our good works of generosity don't get us into the family, okay? That happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Notice how Nehemiah prays this prayer and calls God, my God. Like he's in, he's already in the family. He's reconciled to God. He's a beloved child of God in Christ Jesus. And his generosity didn't get him there. That's a gift given freely in Christ Jesus. But now that he's in the family, there are rewards given, like a father gives children to rewards, or gives his children rewards for their good works and obedience. All good moms and dads do, do this. Celebrate your children's obedience. You reward your children's obedience. That's a good thing to do. That's a just and righteous thing to do. You celebrate obedience to your children. Even if it's half-hearted obedience or, or imperfect obedience, you celebrate your children's obedience. And as God's children, we have rewards to look forward to for our obedience in the city and age to come. When Christ returns, all his people who loved him and kept his commandments will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. And he will give his people rewards for their generosity and obedience. And doesn't that motivate generosity? We, we are going to receive rewards from our king. And that's, that's what we were talking about earlier in, from the reading from James. Treasures, we're laying up treasures in heaven. That motivates us to generosity here and now. That motivates us to give sacrificially. Shouldn't that give us cause to give generously to the church and to the poor, to the cause of the mission and kingdom of God? Shouldn't that motivate us to support the church in her mission and worship? Absolutely it should. As martyr and missionary Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We as the people of God, as the church of God, ought to be generous because we fear God, care for God's people, because we look forward to our eternal reward. It's worth considering whether or not we're being faithful in our call to generosity. It's worth considering our motivation for generosity. And understand that we of all people, even more than the old covenant community, the old covenant church, ought to be motivated to be generous. We are the church of the new covenant. We live on this side of the coming of Jesus Christ. We live on this side of his life, his death, his resurrection. We live on this side of his ascension and giving of the Holy Spirit. He's poured himself out for his people. He's poured out his blood for his people. He has poured out his breath for his people. He gave generously his life for his people. He suffered the agony and torture being 
flogged and being hung on a Roman cross for his people, he, the Lord and giver of life, suffered death. All so that we would be recipients of all of his benefits and gifts. We've been given full and free salvation from him. And like the Jews received all of these gifts, the ox, the sheep, the birds, the wine, they received them all at Nehemiah's expense. We've received all of Christ's benefits and his gifts at his expense. He is the generous one. And now, like those Jews and officials and and foreign dignitaries, we're invited to feast at Nehemiah's table. We have been invited to feast at the table of Christ. In a few moments, we are going to approach the table and remember Christ's generosity on our behalf, and we're going to feast with him and commune with him, and we're going to look forward to a day when our eternal reward will come with his arrival, and we get to feast with him when heaven and earth are made one. You see, Nehemiah's generosity doesn't even compare to Christ's generosity. Our generosity does not even compare to Christ's generosity. No one can outgive him. But as we remember and behold his generosity here this morning and his sacrificial life and his sacrificial giving, we grow in awe of him, don't we? We grow in fear of him, affection for him. We're so energized to follow him and to mimic him and to seek to embody his generosity as a community for the sake of others and for the sake of his glory and fame. In conclusion, I think this excellent Isaac Watts hymn, The Wondrous Cross, poetically captures the heart behind Christian generosity. Watts wrote this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so it does. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the generosity and beauty and excellence of your Son. Would you transform our hearts as we lay hold of him and trust in him and love him and commune with him? Transform us to be a people who then reflect him to one another and to our city. As we look upon Christ and his good gifts and his good work on our behalf, would you help us to be a people who then grow in devotion to good works for the sake of others, for the sake of one another, and for the sake of our city? Would you help us to be a people who are generous with our time, with our talent, and with our treasure? Lord, we we need your grace for this transformation. We We need you. And so would you help us to be faithful, to faithfully adhere to what you've called us to here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.